to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi. You made it. This is the landing pad for raw honesty about connecting your career with your purpose. I'm going to give you the tools you need to be an unapologetic advocate for yourself and others, because if you're here, you believe that the space we surround ourselves in matters and you're committed to project by project building a better world for all of us. If you're with me, let's get architecting. Every city that has gone forward with, let's say, for example, this concept of green infrastructure, they haven't turned back, right? If anything, they're all trying to scale up. They're all trying to get very creative with the way they're implementing it. And they've all created better places by doing so. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Earth Day episode of Architecting. I am really excited today to have as my guest, Vincent Lee, Associate Principal of Sustainable Development, Integrated Water, and Nature-Based Solutions at Arup. Welcome to Architecting, Vincent. Thanks, Angela, for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, chat with you about good design, sustainability, and and all the things that uh, we try to do to, to make the world a better place. So that idea of making the world a better place, we all aspire to that in some way, but then we kind of hesitate in actually going for it because we think, I don't know what to do or who am I to do this? So could you share a little bit of your background of what drew you to do this work and how you built your career over the years? I'm a civil engineer by background. So even how I got here from the first place, you know, I mean, obviously in school, I had to be pretty good at you know, math and science uh, in order to be able to, to run the analysis and do all the calculations and things that we do. But I think also what, what was maybe different was that I, I grew up in a very, um, in a rural area. I was sort of surrounded by, you know, a state park. So I was always around nature. And then I think also my father was, he was sort of a jack of all trades. <laughs> he was tinkering with stuff. He was always fixing things. He was always just like, he was very hands-on with everything that he did. Obviously, when I went into school, I, you know, I started to pursue different avenues and, and had all sorts of different interests. And you know, because of what I was good at academically and because of like this sort of like passion for nature, you know, I had this, I guess, instilled in me this drive to like tinker and just like work with my hands and just have something tangible. I naturally gravitated towards civil engineering because of all the engineering disciplines, I felt like this was one where, you know, I could actually see it. It's, it was tangible. I can see water flowing. I can't see like electricity, like running through like wires. <laughs> and then I, you know, I graduated from school. I, I did a lot of stormwater management. I did a lot of site development and land development. It wasn't really until I landed my job where I am today at Arup, where they have this sort of like ethos within the firm about like sustainability is everything. And this was back in 2006, I joined Arab. And to this day, that, that's their ethos, their mantra. It enabled me to take all of the learning that I had in school and all of the, the things and the, the passion that I had just growing up to apply it into a way that, hey, you know what, I can engineer systems that can help to benefit nature, right? You're obviously, as a civil engineer, your role is to build and design infrastructure that you know benefits society, transportation systems and infrastructure. But now this layer of sustainability, you can actually provide other benefits around improving water quality, improving air quality, right? Providing places for communities to thrive and to enjoy, to make these livable communities really part of placemaking. And it was really exciting, right? So, that, you know, how do we then 
leverage the technical skills that we have and create these places that that people want to go to that can help to benefit like our cities and communities in so many different ways in a myriad of different ways. I think that really drew out the passion in me and really fostered this collaboration uh, in me that said, I can do all of the calculations that I want to be able to design whatever it might be. But if I don't collaborate with, you know, architects and landscape architects, with city stakeholders, with those who are going to take on whatever infrastructure we design and build, then I, I would have failed at what I designed. So that sort of led me then to this sort of like collaborative spirit that was a big layer with, with the engineering uh, work that we did. Just the idea of placemaking, it's more than just a building. It's the hardscape. It's the systems that make that place dynamic and make that place work. How did you go from that collaboration and that focus on placemaking to some of the more innovative work you're doing around resiliency and building awareness on how we can live better in our places and spaces? There's a lot, right? Like one is like, you know, to be curious. Whenever I saw good ideas or still see good ideas or even crazy ideas, I don't dismiss it because, you know, some of the best ideas just come out of, you know, some some idea that, you know, you have, you know, at the dinner table and you, you sort of sketch out something on the napkins, you talk through it. And at the time, sometimes maybe things might might not might seem far fetched. But when you really look into it and you you give it some merit and some attention, it might be something that could be implementable. Now, obviously, not every idea goes forward, but I think being curious is, is one aspect related to that. I think being open is another one. So being really open to ideas, being open to other people um, and their ideas. We have design reviews and we bring in specialists who are related to the problem at hand. But also sometimes we'll bring in someone that's like completely <laughs> unrelated just to get a different perspective. Because we're a global firm, we're able to also not only bring experts, but we can bring different perspectives from different countries and they can say, hey, you know what? We've done this in, in Hong Kong or there's some really great examples here in the United Kingdom. And it starts to give us confidence, right? That like some of these ideas that, you know, that maybe can be done in other places, uh, we can apply it, you know, in the places that we're currently working in. So I think being curious, being open, and I think being persistent is another one. If you really think that there's an idea that's a good one, don't just give up with the first no, uh, because a lot of it takes education and information to be shared, right? We have, within our design community, we have the benefit of hearing talks, hearing seminars, Hearing from, you know, fantastic designers, fantastic engineers that tell us all the great in terms of the great things that you can do with global best practice. But not everyone has that benefit. So I think there's an element of being curious, being open, but also being informative and educating those that you're trying to drive along so that you're being persistent with what you're trying to do and, you know, what you want to try to achieve. Those were the three main things I think that that drove me. And then obviously there's this sort of collaborative effort that sort of brings all of that together bringing on all of those ideas, being persistent with your own idea, being open to others. When you combine all of that with engineering, you're able to achieve some really tangible and impressive things. Yeah, and your work definitely thinks beyond the standard way to solve a problem. How do you get people on board with that? I mean, I love what you said about collaborating and the educating, yeah. but you're still probably getting a lot of no's. So how do you work around that and show people maybe that what the safe solution is or the industry standard solution is may not be the best fit for them. 
Yeah. I mean, I think a, a really good example of that is green infrastructure. For those that may not know, green infrastructure is leveraging nature and, and nature-based solutions to help manage stormwater from you know the, uh, the places that we develop uh, and within the built environment. The traditional way to do that is what they call gray infrastructure, right? So, you know, large concrete channels or concrete pipes in the ground, large underground storage tanks that can help to store water. For the longest time, that was the way it's been done. And, and in many ways, there's still merit in doing that. And there's the ultimate solution is a hybrid solution between gray and green. But now you introduce this new concept, right, that says, well, we're going to still manage stormwater uh, using infrastructure, but now we're going to actually take nature, we're going to use soils, we're going to use plantings, we're going to use the, the, the absorptive capacity of the ground that uh, we walk on to help soak up that stormwater, to help clean that stormwater, to help feed the plants that are part of that garden that we're creating. And now you bring that into an environment where it needs to be approved, it needs to be permitted, it needs buy-in, it needs you know more collaboration because now you're building something on the surface instead of something that's underground and out of sight, out of mind. You need to then work with different partners to be able to make that happen. Before, you could just say, well, I'm going to put a pipe in the ground, and I only basically need to talk to one agency. And now you need to partner up and say, hey, uh, hey, agency that manages all of the drainage here on this street, we're thinking now of using green infrastructure here. And then they say, well, there's plantings that are part of that. Maybe we should go and talk to um, the parks department and let them deal with this, not us. And then the parks department, you go talk to them and they say, well, that's actually in the street and the sidewalk, it's visible. So maybe you should talk to, you know, someone on the transportation side. And then you talk to transportation and they say, well, actually, you're dealing with water and drainage. You should really go talk to that drainage department. (laughs) Everyone's sort of like initial reaction that if it's not something that you've been doing, which many of the agencies have this sort of like, you know, they've been doing it for the same way for 30 years. And now you introduce a new concept. It takes curiosity, it takes some openness, it takes some persistence to have that collaboration, to be able to sh- share with them and say, hey, look, there are other ways you can do this and and demonstrate to them that like, look, this, this is a, a way that we can move forward. There's other cities that are doing it. We can, you know, we can do test cases to provide that evidence. And then you slowly get that buy-in to get on board. And when, when the idea is as good as that one, there's like, there's no turning back, right? And I, uh, I would say that, Every city that has gone forward with, let's say, for example, this concept of green infrastructure, they haven't turned back, right? If anything, they're all trying to scale up. They're all trying to get very creative with with the way they're implementing it. And they've all created better places by doing so. I love the idea that you can pull together different departments. And that takes some skill, though, right, to know who do I talk to first? How do I bring these different silos of government together? So that they're collaborating and thinking differently about how to solve a problem instead of that's for you to deal with, that's for you to deal with, that's for you to deal with. That's right. I mean, to me, it's you're you're co-creating solutions together, right? And if you're rather than just treating it as residents where this is going to go, this is infrastructure, this needs to be here. We're going to put this here. Uh, And rather than say you know what, this is, um, they're the regulators. We're, we're just going to try to push this forward. And we're going to try to get some buy-in some, some other way. If you work with them, you'll actually end up with a better solution because you're you're co-creating these together. Now, it's more challenging. It's, it takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more persistence. But at the end, it's, it's an accomplishment. Your it's client 
is the government agency, that's sort of one path. But what happens when you maybe are dealing with a private client and now this is maybe seen as an obstacle to them? It's more expense to the project, more time to the project. How do you introduce green infrastructure then? It is is a different mindset. Number one is that there's creativity in it. And what green infrastructure in, in this case would lead to is, is, in my opinion, and I think in many others, is a better design, a better product right out there that as a developer, you can market, you can sell to whoever it is you're marketing and selling to. And the other aspect is that's related to now all of the analysis that we have to do is, you know, sort of like this cost benefit analysis. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, but I think the, the, the number one thing is think about is that the benefits that you have from, I'm going to go back to that simple example, the benefits that you get from that pipe in the ground is that you are taking water from your site and you're putting it in this pipe and you're discharging it. Now, the benefits that you get from green infrastructure is you're taking that water from your site, you're putting it in, let's say, on this rain garden, and it's taking away water from your site, maybe a different way but by absorbing it. But you're also getting these other benefits that come with it, right? So you're helping to reduce your CO2 emissions. Perhaps you're creating some recreational space. You're helping improve, uh, create, and and sort of integrate your green space. Um, so that helps with you know meeting your open space requirements, integrating with landscaping, and you're in some ways you're merging costs or integrating costs with landscape. Or if it's permeable pavement, your 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 costs there are with the parking uh, system. So in some ways you're also uh, saving money by um, by sort of like thinking of it as one system rather than its own individual uh, systems. Now, does that help with ease of maintenance? Because I know a lot of times some of my clients are like, all that landscaping, we just have to take care of it. <laughs> this permeable paving, we did that one time 10 years ago on one project and it didn't work. And you know, who knows why they had a bad experience, but now they're completely opposed to it. How do you get people to realize that these solutions really can save them money, maybe even reduce their maintenance costs? Yeah, I mean, maintenance is probably one of the number one obstacles in trying to overcome any stakeholder, whether it's a regulator, whether it's a you know developer or uh, the community. That is probably the number one obstacle that we get. And again, that that becomes a a conversation about like any system that you put in now has to be maintained, right? But because it's on the surface and visible it actually lends itself to saying, oh, no, now we actually have to maintain it. I can see debris. I can see trash that's visible to me. But then if it's underground, just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there, right? And I think that's sort of this, this mind shift that, like, well, the maintenance is needed. It's just that maybe before it was it was neglected uh, and deferred. And and all you're doing is pushing the problem further down the line. And And we see this all the time. You see it with pipes being clogged and catch basins being clogged. With green infrastructure, you know, the, yes, there's 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 definitely maintenance that's needed, but it links up with landscaping maintenance that has to happen. And also the sort of like the stewards that you can create with this, right? And sort of the awareness that happens with this, it raises awareness of like the, just the sheer amount of like stuff and trash and, and things that, that people have. And then there's also a mind shift in terms of staffing. The maintenance of landscaping obviously is very different than the maintenance of, you know, the traditional gray infrastructure. So many agencies, they need to acquire new equipment, right? So to in terms of, uh, let's say, to vacuum permeable pavement systems, and they also need to bring on new staff, right? They need to bring on, you know, a, a drainage department might now need to bring on a landscape architect to help manage that. It is a transition. It is a, a mind shift for sure. 
but it is a it is a conversation that needs to happen at the early stages of of planning to be able to make sure that everyone's on board with that transition that will have to happen. And I like that you said raising awareness, right? Because now we're not only doing something that's good for the environment and also good for the bottom line because it's going to help with energy costs, it's going to help with managing things in the building. It means thinking different, but it's also now a showpiece. It's something people can be talking about. We know that extreme weather events are becoming more and more common. And so how do these opportunities to be role models for resiliency help get people more excited about the opportunity, not just solving the problem of, I got to deal with my infrastructure? I think it gets people excited. The opportunity that good design brings can really get people excited about resilience rather than apprehensive about resilience. But if you go in and say, we're going to build a storm surge barrier or a, a giant you know, a wall to help protect this area, that's what leads to the apprehension, right? And I think these are neighborhoods that people live in. These are communities that people have grown up in. And we think of it only as a and this is this sounds weird for me, I guess, as an engineer, but if you think of it only as an engineered solution, I think we're actually doing a disservice to the communities that are, that are there, right? And I think if, if we think of it more as creatively and think of it as a think collaboratively about like, okay, what is it? What is an is there another way that we can that we can do this? And again, that needs it's not just engineers; it needs like designers to be able to and other other collaborators and multi multiple disciplines to be able to co-create these solutions. I'll give you one example. We had a public housing project in New York City. And, um, you know, during Superstorm Sandy, they had six feet of water. The initial reaction was, do we build a perimeter wall around this housing campus? Basically, it would cut off the neighborhood already from from, from many of the surrounding areas and, and adjacencies that they were next to. It would give it a feel that would not be pleasant in any way, even if it was a soft wall, that's not, that's not good design. So we ended up wanting to collaborate with a lot of different designers on what are other things that we could do to do this. And, and the end solution actually, or one of the end solutions was instead of having a perimeter wall, we raised sort of like these inner courtyards where the buildings were so that we can still protect the buildings. We have these now raised platforms that can, and courtyards where, you know, the buildings at least uh, as quadrants are connected. But then we've also created this space now that's regenerated for new playgrounds, new landscape, you know, new placemaking placemaking areas that the residents can enjoy and also still serve as flood protection, right? And if you don't know any better, by the time it's done, you won't even know that that's what it's for, that it's for flood protection. It is just a new elevated courtyard that is providing recreation, that's providing social gathering. That to me is a true success, right? Is is infrastructure that actually folks aren't actually aware of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the idea of saying what else could it be? We get more out of our buildings, we get more out of our urban fabric when things are not single purpose. Yeah, and we say, how do we leverage right. this and make it something that maybe nobody's ever thought of before, but that meets more needs in more ways. And it's a much more powerful solution. So when we think about resiliency and what we're going to be encountering in the future, what are some of the things that you've been looking into lately that you're getting excited about? 
technology has really accelerated, you know, what we can do, right? So the the sheer amount of data that's available to us, the things that technology and machine learning and AI and all these things that are just that that people much smarter than me are working through, they've really helped to accelerate, I think, the things that we can do, right? And, and I think a good example of that is internal research that that Arab had done, you know, over the last two years, call it the Sponge Cities snapshot. What that is, is being able to take open source data that's available for, you know, you know, all the cities around the world, taking the aerial imagery from all of that open data um, that wasn't previously readily available at a high resolution, and then being able to assess pretty good detail how much paved areas, how much roof areas, but also how much, importantly, how much green space is there in, let's say, a a city or a a community that we're looking at. You can do that quite quickly now, rather than having to do it manually. You can can almost teach the computer and say, this color is this, this color is this, and then the the computer runs its algorithm. And then in in this case, it's machine learning that can then allow it to scale up to a a larger area. And then you have an, an an analyst that would then go in and just check to make sure that that's that, that everything's right, that the quality is there. But the analyst, instead of having to go through point by point, they can actually just go through and check what the computer has done. That's enabled us to to scale up and study all these cities around the world. So you know, we started this Sponge City snapshot with, with about eight cities worldwide. Uh, we wanted to see if it was globally applicable. Once we then and assess like how what the land use is looking like for cities, how much green space there is. We then want to then know, well, actually, once it falls in that, that green space, can it actually get absorbed with the soils below? So then the second part of that analysis was then, is there a global data set that we can use to quickly identify how spongy uh, a city is, right? So if anyone's ever worked in London, you, any, you, you know that London is, is built on the London, London clay, right? So you can have all this green space in London, but with the clay that's it's it's on top of, it actually makes it very hard for that water to absorb and infiltrate. Other cities are built on sand, so then that water just infiltrates uh, right through. So this actually gives us good insight on two things. One is how much green space there is in a city, but then also what's the absorptive capacity. So the benefit there is we then start to realize, well, what's the, um, you know, what are the areas of flood risk? Which are the areas that are not spongy in a city? And then also it tells us, well, which of the areas also are, you know, are filled with green space, which ones are recreational space. It's a good link in terms of uh, how, to, how to plan or how to like, think about cities in the future. And then it also gives us a, a case where you can learn from other cities. You can say, well, we can't be spongy because, you know, we've got clay in our, in our city and we can never do it. Right. But then you actually see that, oh, look, there's another city over there. They've actually got a pretty similar soil profile to us. And somehow their sponginess is high. What are they doing that's enabling that? So then you relearn that, okay, actually, they have a, a pretty good land use program. They, they, they have an open space uh, requirements. The tree canopy, which is another layer, like the more tree canopy you have, the more absorptive capacity you have. So then you start to learn from like what other cities are doing. And then it, it decreases that culture of no, that we can't do it here. And then the other insight that we found is that New York City was uh, one of the, the cities that was part of the Sponge City snapshot. And they, they, they've ranked, you know, on the, the top half of the, the cities that we assessed in terms of sponginess. But if you look at actually where their green space was, they have huge parks. 
So a lot of their open space and green space is, is sort of like centralized in like, let's say, parks like Central Park or Van Cortland Park in the Bronx. So it actually shows that not only is it not equitable from a public space perspective, it's actually not equitable from a stormwater management perspective. And certain systems are being uh, taxed and, and sort of like overcome uh, with, with runoff. Again, the technology has enabled us to make that assessment quite quickly. And it's enabled us to, to have that insight at our fingertips uh, where we didn't have that available to us before. And I wanted to actually ask you about equity. So I'm glad you brought it up because I do think that as we start to look at land use, we've seen studies that can show incidence of disease related to trees or green space. So we know that there's definitely an impact on well-being from having quality space. And now you're explaining that there's definitely an impact on our resilience to adverse weather, but also to better infrastructure and being better stewards of our environment. Where does the equity argument come into the equation here? Is that something you're finding people will get more invested in, or are you finding that it doesn't really yet come into play? It is very much part of the conversation in the work that we do. I think it was always there, but I think now it is, it's front and center with, with the work that we do, right? That you, there's no sustainable development unless, unless we are ensuring that the impact that we have is going to benefit everyone you know, in an equitable way. There's a couple of examples I can cite. We did a strategic plan with Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. So it's really l- largely Cook County. And there was a study that was done that illustrated where flooding impacts were happening across Cook County, where historically redlined communities were, and then where, let's say, green infrastructure investments were happening. It showed pretty clearly that the areas that were getting flooded were areas that were uh, historically redlined and areas that also did not receive as much implementation for green infrastructure, right? So part of the strategic plan, this was, I, you know, I, I credit the MWRD and their board for this. They made sure that equity and inclusion was a, a key component of that plan. And because of that, part of the plan going forward for the next five years is to say, we need to provide the resources for those communities that cannot provide the personnel, provide the materials, you know, provide the knowledge in those areas that are hard hit, that historically have been disadvantaged, so that they can actually implement green infrastructure, right? So because the communities that had the consultants, that had the resources, the, the staffing to be able to do it, they, they were able to do it. But the, you know, the communities that, that were disadvantaged, they didn't have the resources to be able to do it. So the plan was to, to help support that program so that we can, we can, we can be more equitable with the stormwater solutions uh, for the, the county. Resources to cope are so important. And, you know, I see that in my own work as well. Like, it seems like no matter where you go, no matter what scale you're working at, when people have resources, they can handle just about anything. But when they don't, you start to see that they get taken out. And I think it's become an imperative now. We just can't ignore the equity issue any longer. And it's very tied to resiliency, like you were saying. Yeah, very much so. I mean, another really good example is in your home state is a project in Cleveland. It's a project that's driven, you know, so, you know, initially by resilience, right? You know, Sandy sort of caused a lot of 
challenges along the eastern uh, lakefront uh, in Cleveland. And, you know, the highway was damaged, like the waterfront was severely impacted. Because of that, it's drawn attention to we need to do something about this. But the solution that's come forward is we need to create public space. Uh, we need to create a, a, a waterfront that is going to provide the resilience for the, the infrastructure along the waterfront, but also one that can then provide that much needed public space for the communities on, on the eastern portion of the city who have long been neglected with, you know, because of just, um, you know, past and uh, historic development practices. Project driven by resilience, but equity is very much uh, front and center uh, with that project. And as it should be, right? It's, it's good to see these things. Finally, the dots are being connected and we're seeing how it's all interrelated. I really appreciate you bringing all that to the forefront today and sharing some of the exciting work you're doing. I mean, it is so cool to think about green infrastructure and what that means and how it's actually giving us cities that not only work better, but cities that are more livable and what that can mean for our future and what a powerful impact we can have. So really appreciate you sharing all of that. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's much appreciated. And it, it, in, in many ways, it makes me feel like, you know, my job is, is actually fun. <laughs> it's enjoyable. Uh, it's enjoyable being able to uh, collaborate and co-create solutions and, and have these these outcomes that are that are tangible. Well, the passion you have for what you do just comes through in everything you say. And I think that's magnetic. People want to work with somebody who is excited about what they're doing, who believes in what they're doing. And I also appreciate so much that you shared a little bit of how did I get there, right? Because you don't start day one saying, I'm going to study sponginess in urban environments <laughs> and its impact on equity. But right. it's a cumulative thing because you had the clarity about what you wanted to do and you just pursued it no matter what, looked for opportunities, looked for a career path that would get you to be able to keep evolving. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate that uh, you know, Arab has been uh, very supportive I think uh, designers and architects and landscape, uh, landscape architects like working with me because I don't say no. They'll tell me some crazy idea. And as an engineer, I think maybe they're accustomed to being told no or that can't be done here. I'll at least say, well, let me take a look at it and let me see if we can find a, a way to meet your vision and so that it doesn't compromise the architecture that you want to achieve and the design you want to achieve and it doesn't compromise the engineering that, that we need to achieve. If people would like to work with you or just follow you and learn more about the really cool stuff that you are working on, how can they get in touch? If you want to see my company's work, you can go on you know, www.arup.com. If you'd like to reach out to me and see what I'm up to, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Vincent Lee and at Arup. It should be pretty easy to, uh, to find me. Be happy to always uh, continue the, the conversation and help, help folks out. If you've heard this episode and you got a big aha moment, definitely post about it and tag Vincent. I'm, it's really powerful when someone's work gets shared because it gets amplified and it can have an even larger effect, even bigger impact. Definitely share what you learned after listening to this episode. Well, thank you again so much, Vincent, for being on today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Angela. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
thank you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the episode, which means you are committed to making yourself a priority so you can be empowered to do the work you were called to do in the world. How amazing is that? If you would like even more content just like this, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I would so appreciate it if you left an honest review too. Hey, I want you to know I'm here for you beyond the boundaries of this podcast. You can follow me on social media at Architecting Podcast or visit architectingpodcast.com to download some great free resources. Take care, everyone, and stay inspired. Mm-hmm.